0: In any way, the automatic reaction from this culture was there must be sin somewhere in the family. And, you know, that's something that we, isn't completely unrelatable. You know, I know that I have seen several times where a friend of mine or someone I know has come down with, say, cancer or something, and there's always someone in the crowd who will stand there and who will say, You need to get the sin out of your life because you sinned, and so now you're sick. Well, truthfully, there is no biblical. Um, foundation for that doctrine. There's no there's no biblical proof that sin is directly related to sickness. You know, you can be a Christ-like and you can be holy and you can still fall into that. And so that's what Christ is coming here to say. He's saying this man is blind not because he sinned. Sin has nothing to do with it. He's blind because in verse three he says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. His sin had nothing to do with his blindness, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That was the reason why he was blind, so that the works of God could be revealed in his weakness. In his deficiency, Christ was going to show himself strong. Every time you see a miracle in the Bible, it's not so much for the person that was healed or the person that it was done to, it's so that the glory of God can be seen through that miracle. And that's what the whole book of Mark is about. It's about miracles, it's about the servanthood of God, and it's about the glory of God being shown in the deficiency and the lacking of others where Christ shows himself strong in their weakness. So... I just thought that was really interesting. I wanted to share that with you before we jumped into our text. But if y'all can flip over to the left, we'll go to Mark chapter 8, which is, I believe, where you guys were last week. We're going to start in uh, verse 22. And tonight we're going to cover a really short portion, so hopefully we won't keep you guys very long. We're just going to cover eight brief, eight brief verses. But uh, I have to tell you, this is one of my favorite miracles. I was really pretty psyched whenever Mike asked me to teach. Because of all the miracles, there are 32 recorded miracles in all four Gospels, Uh, chronologically without repeating any of them. There are 32 from the beginning of his ministry to his death that are recorded. Now, the book of John says that if all the miracles that Christ did were recorded, not even all the libraries in the whole world could contain them. But for us, we know 32, and this is the 23rd miracle done in the chronological life of Christ. And uh, it's one of my favorites, honestly, for a couple reasons that I'll I'll talk about a little later. But uh, again, before I start into the text, let me just say that um, this is the first miracle that has been done to a, you know, for sure, a Jewish man. This is kind of weird for the script because Christ has just done um, some miracles for Gentiles, which is kind of odd. And then uh, he did in kind of more Gentile area, starting in chapter 7 with the Gentile woman, and Gentile just means non-Jewish woman, that um, had a demon-possessed daughter, and he healed her daughter, cast the demon out. And it's largely believed that the death and mute man in chapter 7, that you read about third, verses 31-37, that that deaf and mute man was also a Gentile, and also that the feeding of the 4,000 was a mixed multitude of Gentiles and Jews. And so it's kind of interesting that Jesus had just kind of did these other miracles that didn't really reach out directly to the Jews, they touched the the other people, you know, people like me and you who aren't Jewish. And then at the end of chapter, um, at the end of the feeding of the 4,000, that story, he gets in a boat and goes across the sea to Delmaneth, which uh, I believe is a Jewish region next to, or close to Bethsaida, which is where we pick up. And um, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to read verse 22 of chapter 8. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he, verse 23, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And he put his hands on his eyes again. This is Jesus putting his hands on the man's eyes and told him, and and made him look up. And he was restored, and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, "Neither go into the town, or tell anyone in the town. Bethsaida, as we read about in verse 22, where this kind of happens, Bethsaida is a really interesting little uh, city. It's the city that we believe Peter, Peter, Philip, and John were called out of. It's uh, a city that is very close to Capernaum. In fact, um, one of the sources I was studying said that Capernaum, was a large city. In fact, that was the head. That was the headquarters, as you all know. As Pastor Mike was covered, it was the headquarters of Christ's um, uh, ministry. And Bethsaida was very close on the seafront. So Bethsaida was kind of considered the fishermen's outlet of Capernaum. It was. It was its own little town, but it was directly related to Capernaum. And uh, you know, they would sell the fish there, and that's where the fishermen would live and do their trading and stuff. Now, I say that this is one of my favorite uh, miracles for a few different reasons. One of them is that uh, Jesus led the man out of Bethsaida. I think that is so interesting because it kind of seems a little contradictory. Like, wouldn't you want to do this in the middle of the city so that people could see? You know, maybe someone would see this miracle and then they would come and know Jesus or, or believe in him because they'd see this fantastic thing. This guy gets his sight restored. Well, yes, but the reason why he doesn't is because Bethsaida knew him so well. You have to remember, Jesus had spent quite a bit of time in Capernaum and Bethsaida. That was a place where he actually got Peter, John, and Philip. He knew it well, and the people knew him well. Later, in Luke chapter 10, I think it's verse 15, Bethsaida is actually one of the... I'm not sure if it's verse 15 or not, but I know it's in Luke 10. Bethsaida is one of the cities that Jesus actually weeps over next to Chorazan. He says, Bethsaida and Chorazan. If the works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented of their ways. So Bethsaida was a city that had seen the power of God, had seen God. Jesus had not been shy to work His power in Bethsaida, but it was a city that had largely rejected, I'm sorry, had largely rejected Him completely and was not repentant. For those of you who don't know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah is held as one of the most evil cities. Of the Old Testament, um, it was a city that God directly wiped out. It was so evil that it, it, that um, He did not permit it to live anymore. But yet, this city, this evil city, if it would have seen the miracles that Christ did in it, would have repented of its sin. But it decide it didn't. And so, what Jesus is doing is that He's taking this man who He knows will accept Him in His heart, and leading Him out of the city because it's a picture of how even though in a dark city that has rejected Christ. One person, it, he's not afraid of going into a city that's rejected him to bring out one heart that will accept him. And I love that. It's so beautiful that he goes into the city, and it says there in verse 23, he took him by his hand. He wasn't afraid to touch this guy. He wasn't afraid to take him in his hand. Um, you know, He wasn't afraid to lead him away from everyone to heal him. Now, the second thing that I really love about this, well, before I move on, let me say this too. It's also a picture of how In our own lives, you know, we all, it's a very common instinct for humans to gravitate towards one another, you know, you put a bunch of people in the dark and then eventually they'll actually find themselves and they'll all be in one corner. We like having people around us. It's the same spiritually. Spiritually, it's scary when God touches to us, when he touches us in a certain area or convicts us in a certain area. The, the first thing we want to do whenever God touches a part of our life and says, this, I want you to change, is we want to grab somebody and take, us, and take them along with us to give us comfort, you know, to have someone there for the road trip. But the truth is, God cannot do, he will not do something in our lives with us, me, Jesus, and someone else, whether it's a pastor, a friend, a mom, or a dad. What goes on, the life-changing work between Christ and you has to be between you and Christ. And I love that picture here that Jesus separates him from his friends, he separates him from his city to change his life, and that's what God wants to do with us. We can't bring other people to the altars of our conviction. We have to go there of ourselves, we have to go there with Jesus and let him do that in us. And it is a very scary thing, it calls for courage, but it's something that is um, so well rewarded that it's, it's so worth it. You know, something that uh, Jesus will always be there every step of the way, and he'll give you strength to do it. You know, I think it's also symbolic that Jesus took this man by his hand because even though he calls you to something that you must do by yourself, you must surrender to God with, you must do this thing with just you and Jesus. No pastor, no anyone else. You can't bring someone along with you. Jesus just has your hand. He's taking your hand along the way. He never leaves you. And I love that picture there, too. The... Uh, Second thing that I really love about this um, little miracle is how Jesus does it. It's the only miracle that we have recorded that um, does, he does two, two things. He leads him away, and then it takes two tries, two attempts, it seems, for him to be healed. It's the only one that does that. Now, in its commonality, it's actually one of the most common miracles. Throughout the entire four books of the Gospels, four Gospels, Restoring a sight and giving a sight to the blind is the most common miracle that Christ does. Now, there's nothing common about that. The picture there is that that is what Christ seeks to do in all of our hearts, to give us that spiritual vision because we're all blind to Him. We can't see Him. We're all in darkness, and He wants to change us. Ephesians says that we who are once darkness, He wants to make into light. We can turn into light. And that's that picture. That's why it's the most recorded miracle in the Bible. However, this one is unique in that most of them have to deal with Jesus touching them. Uh, in John 9, that we just read about. In that one, Jesus actually spat on the ground, mixed the saliva with the dirt to make like a clay paste, put it on his eyes, and then told the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then once the man washed off the mud from his eyes, he could see. But this one's unique because it seems like he attempts to heal him, and then it doesn't work, and then he does it again, and then it works. That's just what it seems to be because that's actually not the case at all. Christ is powerful enough to heal this man of his blindness. It's not that... His blindness was so powerful, it took two tries. The picture here, that instead, Christ is giving us a picture of something greater. He's giving us a picture of what um, healing is. Healing takes time. Healing, healing doesn't happen overnight. You know, I always think of salvation and that, you know, whenever I was little, I would listen to these preachers at my grandpa's church would talk about being saved, and then they just, you get saved, and then your life is changed, and then that's it. You know, but they don't tell you about after you become a Christian, there's still that stronghold that the enemy has in your life. You know, there's still that sin that you struggle with. There's that thing that takes a long time for you to heal. They don't say anything about that. And while salvation is instant, you know, salvation is our, has to do with our spirit and that our spirit, your spirit is eternal. And it will either go to heaven or it will go to hell. In heaven, there's no room. You cannot live, be in heaven as a spirit. Your spirit cannot go to heaven if there's sin tainted on it. It goes to hell. So Christ imputes his righteousness on your spirit so that your spirit can go to heaven on Christ's righteousness. That's instant. That's something that happens when you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart. But then while you're still here back on earth, there's a lot of things that you're working through. There's a lot of problems you end up coming up against, you know. As a Christian, for me, I know my experience after becoming a Christian, it seemed like my life got harder, not easier. But the cool thing was Christ was there with me every step. And that's just the picture that Christ is giving here. It's not that he, you know, he spat on this guy's eyes and then um, and then he, you know, took his hands away and the guy says right here, says, what do you see? And the man says, I see men like trees walking. I remember this guy had his vision restored. He wasn't born blind. He knew what it was like to see. He knew what people looked like. He knew what trees looked like. He knew what sunsets and sunrises looked like. But... He had it taken away. We don't know how, traumatically, medically, I don't know. But he had this vision taken away, and whenever he opens up his eyes, he says, okay, I know that there was a a death of sight here, and now I'm opening up my eyes, and Jesus touched me, and I'm not quite where I need to be, but it's better, and that's the focus. That's the main point of the story. It's better, and then Jesus eventually does completely heal him. You know, When he was restored, he saw everything clearly, like I said, that's just a picture of how in life there are seasons that you go through, there are times and, and places that you go through where you struggle with things. But take a moment and ask yourself what Jesus asked him because he says right here, so he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit out his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Jesus knew the answer, but what he wanted to do was he wanted to show the blind man the progress. He wanted to say, hey, you were blind. Now you had, an inter- you had an interaction with me look what's your progress now. you know that's what I wanted to come tonight and say to you if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and you're here tonight, stop and look at your progress. What's different about your life? you know I know for me to uh, July 28, 2013, a whole different deal than 2012. you know take a moment of your life, look at where you're at and compare you know and it's good for us to do that as Christians. It's good for us to see how, how we've healed, how we've grown, since meeting Christ, since having the interaction with Christ. And the truth of it is, some things in our hearts, some things in our minds, some things that have been done to us, they take time to heal. And it's okay, and that's okay. Christ is okay with that. Jesus is okay with how long it takes you to heal. That's no problem to him. He's willing to be there for you, and he's willing to heal you at your pace, at your speed. So in verse 26... Leaving that uh, miracle behind, he says, "Neither go into town nor tell anyone in the town." Now he's, he's saying that because um, I, I believe it's because he his fame is growing at this point. You know, he um, one of the problem one of the ways that they crucified Christ was they accused him of being a king and they basically accused him of trying to start a revolt. And as his fame would grow, people would amass behind him. And so he's basically telling this guy, hey, don't say anything about it, because Christ knew that his time wasn't now. You know, eventually this man would have the freedom to tell everybody about what Christ had done to him. But for this moment in time, Jesus was asking him to keep quiet about it. And so the man kind of drops out of our story, and we don't really see anything from him ever again. But we move on to verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, "Who do men say that I am?" So they answered, "John the Baptist." But some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, "But who do you say that I am?" Peter answered and said to him, "You are the Christ." Verse twenty-nine. Then verse thirty, he strictly warned them, and they should that they should not tell, they should tell no one about him. This is the last three verses that I'm going to spend with you guys tonight. But I thought this was. This this little scripture has always just really um, completely uh, amazed me that he would ask them this. I, I love, it. in fact, next week is really an awesome, gonna be an awesome week in scripture too. Whenever we finish out this chapter, because this portion seems like I'm just giving you half, you know, half of the pie. Like you can't have the whole thing. Like I feel like I should go read the next three verses, but I'm not. Uh, but just focusing on this, not looking ahead to see the rest of the story. Uh, which, by the way, if you're worried about spoiler, go ahead and, If you don't know the story, go ahead and read it ahead of time. It's worth it. It's worth reading. But um, it's just after this after this episode with this blind man of Bethsaida, Jesus leads the twelve disciples, and we don't know if it was just the twelve. Whenever it says that word disciple, it could be twelve, it could be 142. We don't know. It's, it's not specifically to the twelve, but because he had several disciples at this point. Um, but he leads them, and it seems like he is talking directly to the 12 disciples because it's Peter that answers him. And he asks them, who do men say that I am? You know, and Jesus really didn't care who men said that he was. He knew the answer. He was God. He knew everything. He knew what people were saying about him. But he wanted to hear them say it. And that's something that I think is cool about Christ. He knows, a lot of times, he knows exactly what we're going to say. He knows exactly what we're going to talk to him about when we pray. But you know what? He wants that interaction. He asked because he wanted them to respond. He didn't ask because he didn't know. He wanted them to talk to him. And that's what he desires for us, for us to talk to him, for us to have that relationship with him in prayer and, uh, and just friendship with him throughout the day. But they answer. Some say John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And then there's this question that I want to leave you with tonight, in verse twenty-eight or verse 29. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. In other books and other gospels, it says you are the Christ, the Lord, or the Son of God. And that's what I want to leave you guys with tonight because if you're here, you know, this question appeals to everyone at every stage in their life, whether you're not a Christian and you're here tonight or whether you are a Christian and you're just newly a Christian or you've been a Christian for a long time, you can always ask yourself this question. Who do men say that I am? As Jesus asked me, who do men say that I am? For you here tonight, you know that Jesus is the Lord, you know that he's risen, you know that he's the Christ, the King, the God of the universe, but who is he to you in your heart? Is he your healer? And if he's your healer, then have you let him heal the hurt that's in you? Have you let him take over what you've been holding back? Is he your savior? Have you actually left the sin that he saved you from? Are you still in it, are you still bound by it, are you still chained by it? Is he your Lord? You know? Who would a man say that I am? If he's your Lord, do you obey him? Do you have a relationship with him? And if he's your friend, then do you spend time with him? Do you weekly, daily spend time with him? Wanting to go to his feet, wanting to talk to him, wanting to tell him about your day. You know if he's interested in all of that. You know, it's an incredible thing to think that the God of the universe, who created everything. I mean, you think about the most majestic picture of nature that you could ever think. My sister um, went on a trip this summer to Canada and then to Alaska for the entire summer. And I've been seeing all of these pictures in uh, in on Facebook. And she obviously has a lot of repenting to do because in Galatians it says not to stumble, your brother to envy. That's what she's been doing. And... Um, you know, these pictures are just, they're just beautiful. They're majestic, these huge mountains with these, you know, not just these white tops, but these huge roots that go into the ocean and go into these huge lakes, and they're pristine and they're beautiful and breathtaking. And to think of the God who didn't just engineer the big, micro stuff like that, but he engineered the tiny little single-celled organisms swimming around in the lakes there, to the fish, to the bears and the lions and all these things that I've been looking at, mountain lions i am looking at these pictures, and to think that that God who created all of that, created me and you, would care enough to ask each one of us, who do you say that I am in your heart? That's an incredible, incredible, monumental question that the God of the universe, who holds the entire universe in the span of his hand, would ask us, who do you say that I am in your heart? That's what I want to leave you with tonight, who do you say that Christ is in your heart? Lord, I thank you for today, Father. I thank you for uh, your love and your grace, God, for this brief period of time I've been able to spend with uh, these beautiful people gathered here tonight, Father. I pray that something was said that that you would uh, that you would fill them with your spirit, would guide them as they go about their week. Please uh, be their healer, Lord. Heal their hearts, God. Be their savior. Save them from the sin that they're in, Lord. Be their Lord and help them to obey you and grow in them. God, um, please teach them how to be your friend, Father, and to spend time with you. Thank you that you do heal us, Lord. Thank you that you do work miracles in our hearts and in our lives, Father. And I just praise you and I pray to you, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in his holy and precious name, amen. Amen.